I want to greet each of you in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be back again after a week away. Um, I feel like I've been away a lot. I wasn't necessarily meaning to do that. I kind of feel like I need to apologize for it. But this weekend is actually uh, pre-ordination meetings in Arkansas. And uh, when that's done, I don't think there's anything going on until November. So I'm looking forward to Doing a little more sitting and a little more being here. Thanks for your patience. I uh, have before me uh, what's going to be, Lord willing, a three series, three sermon series out of First Peter chapter two, the first ten verses. You can turn there if you like. You might just want to put a marker there at First Peter two. I don't feel like we're going to spend a lot of time here. I'd like to spend this first message talking about our responsibility and actually our privilege to be builders with God in the kingdom of God. I would like the next message to consider the fact that we are not just builders, but building materials. We are living stones that God is using in building his kingdom. And the third message, I'd like to talk about the fact that In that temple, we are not only builders and building materials, we are priests. And we are to work in that temple um, as priests of the living God. So those are kind of big thoughts. It's a big topic, um, important passage here in 1 Peter. Um, My text for this morning is chapter 2, verse 2 through 10. Before I get into that, text, uh, just a little bit of background for you. I don't know if you've thought about the fact that man has been on this planet for about, I guess there's some different numbers thrown around, but we can say six or 7,000 years. And I just wonder what we think man has to show for all of his efforts and labor for these six or 7,000 years. One way to measure man's accomplishments is to consider things that he's built. I guess some of you here are builders. You can identify with the sense of accomplishment you get from completing a project that kind of honors your ingenuity and your skill and your hard work. You've created something where there formerly was not something. I've not had much experience with that, but I I think I can identify with the blessing that it is to finish a project and have something to show for your labor. Starting about... uh, About the time of Christ, shortly before that, a Greek philosopher came up with, after his travels around the civilized world, a list that he called the seven wonders of the world. Seven wonders of the world that would be a testimony to the genius and the hard work of builders among men. I wanted to read you a few of the things that are on that list and then think about something that the seven wonders of the ancient world all have in common. I have them in the order that they've been destroyed. First one is the great Colossus on the island of Rhodes in Greece. The great Colossus in the island of Rhodes was a statue that straddled the inlet to the uh, port on the island of Rhodes. It was a massive 
statue, the biggest one that had ever been built at that time or for long after. That statue stood for 60 years. The Colossus of Rhodes stood for 60 years and was destroyed utterly by an earthquake. Second wonder of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon in uh, modern-day Iraq. They uh, were built around 600 B.C. The time of Nebuchadnezzar, it's said that the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were built to appease his wife, who he had apparently imported from a mountainous area, and Babylon was flat and kind of deserty, and she missed the mountains and the forests and the woods, and so he took Babylon and made it a three-dimensional city. He built it up and over and had gardens with plants hanging down, and it was a wonder of the world. The hanging gardens of Babylon disappeared from history. The uh, time of their destruction is is not known for sure, but they don't exist anymore. Third great wonder of the world is the great temple of Artemis. It's in our Sunday school lesson today. The King James calls it the uh, temple of Diana. But the city of Ephesus was known for being the worldwide center for the worship of Artemis, the Greek god of Artemis. So this was in Ephesus in Turkey, the great temple of Artemis the uh, third great wonder of the world. It burned to the ground in 356 A.D., utterly destroyed. The fourth great wonder of the world is uh, in Olympia, Greece. It's the great statue of Zeus in the temple of Zeus. Zeus would have been the chief of the Greek gods, and his statue was world-renowned as being tall and beautiful, um, That statue was burned and destroyed in 462 A.D. Fifth great wonder of the world is a mausoleum at Halicarnassus. I'm not familiar with this one. Um, Mausoleum at Halicarnassus, a massive temple to a dead great person. I don't know a lot more than that. Um, That mausoleum survived until the 1200s. It was destroyed by an earthquake in the 1200s. It doesn't exist anymore. The great lighthouse of Alexandria in Egypt, it stood in a port. It was the highest structure on the planet at the time it was built. It stood for 14 centuries. In 1323, it was utterly destroyed by an earthquake. Six of the seven great wonders of the world. You can't go see them. They don't exist anymore. Only one of the great wonders of the ancient world survives, and it's kind of a pathetic relic of what it was when it was built. The Great Pyramid in Giza, Egypt, has been existent for 45 centuries. It still stands today. It covers 13 acres at the base of the pyramid. It was built by blocks that would have required 250,000 semi-trucks to haul. It was built with the bare hands of 100,000 slave laborers. Tallest structure on the planet until the 1800s. Something taller had been built. It was looted within 200 years of being built. It had been filled with priceless treasures. The riches of Egypt were in this temple, and they were 
ransacked and looted and pillaged and stolen shortly after the pyramid was built. Um, shortly after that, the exterior had been made of polished granite that was weatherproof, and it shone in the sun. It was beautiful. The cladding, this, this polished granite that coated the pyramid, shortly after the treasures were stolen, the cladding was stolen and used for other construction. So since that time, the, the uh, limestone that the rest of the pyramid was built with has been exposed to the weather, and the pyramid is eroding. It's rotting away. It was 480 feet tall when it was built. It's down to 430 feet now, and it's washing away. It's the last of the seven great wonders of the ancient world, and it is... Uh, a shadow of what it was when it was built. So there are now a, a list of the seven great wonders of the modern world that lists attainments of man and construction and structures and buildings that are still standing. But you have to wonder if what was built in the ancient world didn't survive what likelihood that these wonders would survive. Okay. Why would I invest precious sermon time in all of that? I want to consider in all of human history, what is the single greatest building project that's ever been attempted? Single greatest building project ever attempted. I'm going to propose that the scriptures would teach us that it's the church of Jesus Christ that's referred to in the scriptures as a building. And we are referred to as its builders it's building materials, and it's priests. Turn with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 2. Consider this greatest ever building project. Familiar passage, but I want, as we read it, to consider the fact that we are not observers of this construction project. We are participants. We are also raw materials. And we are charged to be priests in this greatest building project in history. Daniel 2, starting in verse 26. <clears throat> kind of breaking in here into the middle of this interaction with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we're in verse 26. The king answered and said to Daniel, his name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days? Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter. And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom I have more than any other living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, 
and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold broken to pieces together and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with the miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Forasmuch as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. What shall come to pass... The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. Okay, I think I'll stop there. This is a familiar passage, and we understand that this kingdom this uh, that will destroy all of the other kingdoms of this world that will last forever is the kingdom of God, and specifically the church of Jesus Christ. I wonder if someone who wasn't a Christian or not even a churchgoer would ask you, what does God do? What is his occupation? What does he spend his time performing? What you would answer. It would be simple to just kind of laugh and say that's a foolish question, but we're created in God's image, and all of us could answer that question about ourselves. What would we say is God's occupation? I've had a number of... Uh, Disputes with Daniel and Nathan, I haven't gotten them to see reason yet. Um, they seem to think that the most honorable and sanctified profession is that of a builder. 
And uh, they haven't repented of that yet, but I haven't given up on them. Trying to get them to see that farming is, is certainly a most honorable profession among men. But I have to concede here that God's occupation is that of a builder. Our God occupies himself and is well pleased by building. We can't get around that. Hebrews 3 verse 4 says, Every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. See in Ephesians 1 and verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that's now, he, God, God the Father, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth and which are in heaven, even in him. So God is gathering together materials and building a kingdom. He's building a house for his name. God is a builder. He's gathering living stones as construction materials. I don't know how you all feel about being called living stones, but that's not my term. It's Peter's term. Peter was named Peter by Jesus. That was not his birth name. He was actually named Petros, which means stone. Um, when Jesus said that uh, thou art Peter and that on the rock he would build his church, he used two different Greek words. He spoke of Peter as Petros with a masculine Greek word that meant little stone. And when he said rock, it wasn't the rock, I don't think, of Peter's confession or the rock of Peter himself as a stone, but it was my opinion. When Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, I think he was gesturing to himself. That is, we're going to be introduced here in First Peter in chapter 2, to Jesus as the foundation and Jesus as the chief cornerstone and Jesus as the head of the corner that the entire church is built on. And when Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, I believe he was speaking of himself. Peter being a living stone, like unto us who would be grafted into this building project. You can just file that away if that doesn't uh, ring true for you. I mean, give me a little time. See if it makes a little more sense. Anyway, I think you can accept God is a builder and God is actively engaged in building a house for his name. I titled the sermon, Building Up the Temple. Always kind of blesses me to see the children light up when we sing that. Nathan said about simple songs, and I'm kind of moved by simple verses that the children say between Sunday school and church. And I sometimes feel like I wish I could say as much in a sermon as a child lisps in a five-word verse. Um, it's very easy to be moved by simple truths. But that is a simple song. There's just not a whole lot of theology in it. Um, building up the temple, building up the temple, building up the temple of the Lord. Brother, will you help me? Sister, will you help me? Building up the temple of the Lord. So, what? Little infant song, child song, hardly worth considering, but there's a lot in it. The idea that not only is God a builder, but we are builders and we are engaged with him as laborers together with him in building the greatest building project that's ever been attempted in human history. Brother, will you help me? Sister, will you help me? Do we find that exhilarating and exciting? 
Or is that just a little bit whatever? I think there's a lot riding on how we feel about the privilege of being engaged with God in building the kingdom of God. Does it excite us? Does it almost make us tremble? Turn with me uh, to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. I'm going to spend some time reading some scripture this morning. I'm sure there's a lot of worse things we could do with our time. I want to try to tie the building of Solomon's temple in with the building project we're involved in. First Chronicles 17. Solomon's temple, I think you all would refer to it that way. I know I do. It's actually a poor name for it. It's Yahweh's temple or Jehovah's temple or the temple of the living God. If there's one thing it isn't, it's Solomon's temple. Reminds me of uh, Noah's flood. There was a flood at the time of Noah, but it was God's flood. Anyway, I don't know how else to refer to it. I'm going to say the temple that Solomon built. We know a few things about this temple. We know that it was built by Solomon, the son of David. But we also know that Solomon was a type and a shadow. He was the lesser son of David. The true greater son of David would be um, fulfilled in Christ. We also know that the temple that he built was a shadow and a type to help us to understand when the true temple came in the church of Jesus Christ. First Chronicles 17. Let's read a little bit about this. I want to notice at least three things in this passage. So follow along with me. Now it came to pass as David sat in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remaineth under curtains. Then Nathan said unto David, Do all that was within thine heart, for God is with thee. And it came to pass the same night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, I'm just going to stop there. I don't know if Nathan spoke out of turn, but he had to go back the next morning and eat his words. Because he told David, sounds good, go ahead and do it. And then God invaded Nathan's sleep that night and said, let me tell you what to tell the king. And Nathan went back with a new story. So it came to pass in verse 3, that same night, the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David my servant, thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not build me a house to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up Israel unto this day, but have gone from tent to tent, from tabernacle to one tabernacle to another, Wheresoever I have walked with all Israel, spake I a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commended to feed my people, saying, Why have you not built me this house of cedars? Now therefore, thus shalt thou say to my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepfold, even from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with thee whithersoever thou hast walked, and have cut off all thine enemies from before thee, and have made thee a name like the name of the great men that are in the earth. Also, I will ordain a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they shall dwell in their place, and shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness waste them any more, as at the beginning. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. 
Moreover, I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee a house. I just want to stop there and notice that David suggested and Nathan approved, I'm going to build you a house. And God turns around and says, no, actually, I am going to build you a house. I don't know if that brought David up short, but it would have brought me up short. Here I was asking permission to build a house of cedars for the living God so that he wouldn't be a reproach among the pagans who all their gods had nice temples. But here the living God, creator of heaven and earth, is dwelling in a tent behind curtains. David's just trying to make things right. God says, no, I will build you a house. Verse 11, and it shall come to pass when thy days be expired that thou must go to be with thy fathers that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. We'll just stop there and doubtless David is thinking of Solomon. But God goes on and describes that this can't be Solomon. This can't be the lesser son of David. He's speaking of the greater son of David. He, that is, this seed that God would raise up after him. Verse 12, he shall build me a house. Not you, David, and not Solomon, the lesser son of David. He will build me a house. I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee. That would be Saul. But I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever. Now, I don't think that that could be Solomon. God says, I will settle Solomon in my house and in my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forevermore. Solomon's kingdom didn't last to the second generation. The kingdom of God split apart in the next generation after Solomon. I will, verse 14, I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak to David. Drop down to verse 23. David is speaking now in response to God after hearing what must have been a baffling discussion, unexpected anyway from God. Verse 23, Therefore now, Lord, David speaking here, Let the thing that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house be established forever and do as thou hast said. Let it even be established that thy name may be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God of Israel, even a God to Israel. And let the house of David thy servant be established before thee. For thou, O my God, hast told thy servant that thou wilt build him a house. Therefore, thy servant hath found in his heart to pray before thee. And now, Lord, thou art God and hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Now, therefore, let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant. That it may be before thee forever. For thou blessest, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. All right. It's kind of a long passage, but we see what's going on here. David had this burden to make God a house like the other gods, at least as good 
as the great wonders of the world, maybe better. God says, the house that matters is the house that I, God, will build. And I will put your son on a throne that lasts forever, and that house will last forever. I find it interesting that God, who's well able to build a house for his name all by his lonesome, doesn't choose to do it all by his lonesome. He's not laboring alone. Jesus is helping. I don't quite know how that all works, but God the Father is not the only laborer on this project, this construction project for this house. Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. You know, if Jesus is working in the family business and God's business is building, then Jesus is building with him. Jesus said, I come to do the will of my father. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here we have this house being built by God, yes, but also being built by Christ. Fellow laborers working together, a house for God's name, kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ. I will build my church, gates of hell will not prevail against it. All right, Jesus and God are not working together alone on this construction project. This everlasting house, this kingdom, this throne that will last forever is a joint labor between God and Christ and us. We are burdened and privileged to be laborers together with God in building the kingdom. We build alongside the creator of all things. We have a mechanic that comes to the farm sometimes. I won't name him. I don't want to embarrass him. Some of you may know him. But he's one of the most incredible people I ever met. He just bleeds wisdom and expertise. And I learn so much. If I get within six feet of him, I always learn something. Whenever we call him to the farm to work on something, it's something we couldn't figure out. And he comes in and he opens up his truck and his toolbox and he gets at it. And while he's working, he's talking. And you just got to be there with a basket and catch the knowledge. I mean, he is incredible. I would never miss a chance to work alongside him because there's so much to be learned. It's a privilege to work alongside him. I really admire him for how much he knows. How much more a privilege is it to work alongside the living God, building up the temple? I think sometimes we can uh, lose sight of the privilege that it is to be included on this project. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 3. I'd like to read a few verses here. I want to start in verse 9. Read through 17. All right, I asserted we're working together with God, building the temple of God. I didn't just pull that out of a hat. Here we have in verse 9, we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. I want to notice here, you are God's building. It's kind of an interesting construction project. We're not only building it, but we are the building. I thought about our gym next door and 
That was a church project, and most everyone, probably everyone, had a hand in something in it. Um, we built that gym, if we want to say it that well. Say by the grace of God and with blessings he's given us, we built that gym. How much stranger would it be if we not only built that gym, but we are the gym? It says here in verse 9, you are God's building. You are builders and the building. Hmm. Try to wrap our minds around that. Let's read on. Verse 10. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. I want to notice the phrase, take heed there. Take heed. Be very careful how you build on something as precious as the temple of the living God. Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. Christ is the chief cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation. We are building on top of something that is terribly precious. Paul here in Corinthians is telling us, take heed, be careful, be very careful. Verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, Wood, hay, stubble. Who wants to be responsible for grafting wood, hay, and stubble into the temple of the living God? Gold, silver, and precious stones. Wood, hay, stubble. If any man build with these materials, every man's work will be made manifest. The day will declare it. It shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work. What sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he will receive a reward. If any man's work be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of the living God. We are God's building. We are God's builders and we are God's building. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 17 is very sobering. That's something I want to read that's a little shocking And take off from this. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. I said we need to be very careful. We're building this kingdom with precious building materials. I understand that building material prices are through the roof. I don't imagine that you builders are just real careless with building materials when they cost triple what they cost a year ago. Building materials are very expensive. In the temple of the living God, the kingdom of God, the building materials are living stones purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no construction project that's building with more expensive materials. There's a warning here in verse 17. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Ye, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are? All right. Take heed, verse 10. Take heed how he buildeth thereon. I'm going to read kind of a shocking story about a church group that has chosen to build with wood, hay, and straw. They've defiled the temple of the living God. And it's shocking, and I cluck my tongue as I 
decided to include this today and shame on them and we know better and never hear. Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. Another place that term take heed is, is in Corinthians. Should have written it down. First uh, Corinthians 10, verse 12. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. I think that we could fall into the sin of this church group I'm going to read to you about. I think it could happen here. If it doesn't, it's by the grace of God. Because we're made of the same stuff they are. This church group, I would say, a hundred years ago, was as... I don't want to pat us on the back too much. I feel like we could probably grow in some areas. But can we say that we're orthodox, that we're doctrinally sound, that we're spiritual? Um, if we can say that much, this group would have said that. And a few generations later, this is where they found themselves. This is why we need to take heed with what we build on the foundation of God's temple. I have a little passage here that comes from this church group's website. It's about what Menno Simons would have called his life verse, First um, Corinthians three eleven. He uh, he considered this to be such an important verse that anything he ever wrote before he started writing, he wrote First Corinthians three eleven at the top. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is Jesus Christ. So this church group has an article about other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And it starts out good. And I would say that we are good by the grace of God, but it starts to get a little shaky and then it falls into rank heresy and blasphemy, just falls apart. So listen to this. Think about taking heed. But he that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. All right. A man who never read the Bible until he had been a priest for two years. This is speaking of Menno Simons. He confessed himself to be an ordained priest two years before he opened a Bible. He came to have a favorite Bible passage. On the front page of each of his writings, he included a verse from 1 Corinthians 3.11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. All right. Menno Simons went into the basement of the structure of the church to look at the foundation. He took a long, hard look at the foundation of the temple of the living God. And he didn't like what he saw. He read foundational scriptures about the church. He saw the scriptures pointed beyond themselves to the person of Christ. He believed Christ to be very much alive in the heart of every believer. I think we could affirm that. And Menno saw that Christ was very much alive in the collective life of the church. I think we would agree with that. And that the church was a living structure that had to be entered into voluntarily without compulsion. A church is peaceful. All right, one of the confusing results in the 16th century, this is speaking about the Reformation, early Anabaptists, is how the great structure of the Western church came to be many smaller structures. This is this uh, church group's website describing Menno's theme verse. He says, there was some renovating of the old church, but lots of new construction, 
It resulted in hundreds, now thousands of church groups. They all claimed to have the same foundation of Christ, but they often looked very different in how they taught and practiced being church. Okay, this is starting to get a little bit shaky. It goes on. One of the great tasks that we as the church face in the 21st century is to recognize the living Christ present in all these different faith groups. In all these different church structures we have created, even in structures that don't bear the name of Christ, that come out of completely different wisdom traditions from different homelands. The children of Abraham and Sarah, that would be the Jews. The children of Menno, that would be the Anabaptists. The children of Luther, the Protestants. The children of St. Peter, the Catholics. The children of Buddha and the children of Mohammed, Buddhists and Muslims. I'll jump back a little bit and say that our challenge is to recognize the living Christ present in all these different groups we've created. Okay, you can see we've fallen off into rank heresy and shocking blasphemy. This is a group describing Menno Simon's commitment to other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. All right, Buddha, Muhammad, all these faith groups, all children of God, all living in this common house that we call planet Earth. May our house, this living structure, be a place of hospitality and peace to all who enter as we bear the name of Jesus. So the house, the temple of the living God, the kingdom of God, is the entirety of planet Earth. And anyone that claims to have a faith tradition is good. We see the living Christ present in all these groups we've created. Is anyone wondering what church group this is? Columbus Mennonite Church posted this. They are uh, MCUSA. 500 congregations, 62,000 members. I would say unashamedly bearing the name of Menno Simons, Columbus Mennonite Church. It says they're an inclusive congregation seeking to follow Jesus' teachings and have fellowship with all. We invite you to journey with us in the way of Christ. Read on. LGBTQ. Maybe you know what that is. If you don't, you're probably too young to know it. But LGBTQ inclusiveness. Their first statement before their statement of faith says, in the past three decades, our congregation has engaged in a number of international conversations and studies regarding sexuality. These times have been important learning and growing experiences for us, but have not been without pain and struggle. Emerging from prayerful discernment, we come to a commitment to bless and be blessed by persons who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer. In church lingo, this is often referred to as inclusiveness because religious organizations have been the worst offenders against embracing LGBTQ persons in churches and the society at large. We feel it's important to state outright 
we welcome and affirm LGBTQ persons, not only for membership, but for marriage and ministry. I wonder if they thought it was clever to use M's there, membership, marriage, and ministry. And believe God's love can be equally manifested in a variety of persons and relationships. We see in Jesus one who reached out in compassion and identified with those on the margins. Well, I would say that was true. They've kind of taken that ball and run with it a ways. Thought of uh, the woman caught in adultery is told to go and sin no more, as opposed to affirming her and holding her up to be ordained to the ministry in her sin. We find the early church breaking down dividing walls that had separated people once deemed outsiders. We do find the early church breaking down dividing walls that had separated outsiders, but that's speaking of transformed and sanctified converted Jews and transformed and sanctified converted Gentiles coming together into the kingdom of God. Um, but Christ was not all about breaking down dividing walls. He said that he didn't come just to bring peace, but a sword. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, come out from among them and be separate. Said the Lord, touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. All right. I feel like it was worth spending some time there. As we get into talking about building up the temple of the Lord, that we consider how weighty of a task it is that we be careful as we're laborers together with God that we're building with gold, silver, and precious stones and not defiling it with wood, hay, and stubble. Take heed how he buildeth thereupon. So if there's no chance that we could end up there in a 100 years, this was probably a big waste of time. But I would say that those folks, great-grandparents, would have said they could never end up there. I would say we are who we are by the grace of God, and we need to take heed. Okay. I think we can safely say that Shade Mountain is built on Christ, built on the apostles' teaching. But when we can't say that, can't call ourselves a part of the kingdom of God anymore. All right. Let's uh, get to the text. We won't get very far into it. Appreciate you bearing with me. I wanted to kind of lay a little groundwork for us just to think about our position as workers, as building materials, and as priests in the temple of God. Let's turn to 1 Peter 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 2. Why don't we stand as you're able for the reading of the Word of God. As newborn babes... Desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. Whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Okay, you can be seated. Well, this is a new one for me. I'm, my time is up. We finished our text. I am looking forward to the next two sermons. We want to look at these, this passage that I just read and see that there's Christ is set up as a living stone and a chief cornerstone and elect and precious and the head of the corner. Disallowed of men, a stumbling block, a rock of offense. Christ is in four verses described that way. And then God's people are described in three verses as living stones and as priests of the temple, and as building materials and builders. Let's uh, stand for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the precious privilege it is to be numbered among your people. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken, that you've told us who we are and what has separated us from you. We thank you for Jesus, for making a way to justify us and to remain just yourself. Thank you that by the merit of his blood, we can come to you and call on you, not as a angry, offended, uh, righteous, holy judge, but as a loving father and even an Abba father. Thank you for that great love for us. Thank you for the privilege to participate in the building project of your temple, a house for your name, kingdom of the living God. Pray, Father, that we would be grateful for that privilege, that we would be faithful in our responsibilities. Pray, Father, that you would remind us, teach us what a privilege it is, and that we could do our work effectively and to your honor and glory. Thank you for your presence here this morning. Ask your blessing on the rest of the service in Jesus' name. Amen.